0: The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Not all emerging markets are created equal. The emerging market country we're going to speak of today is certainly, I think, rather unique. With me, is Varun Lajawala, Assistant Portfolio Manager at 91 in London, and we're going to talk about his trip to India, his recent trip to India. The piece that he sent me is entitled Notes from the Road, and, of course, it pertains to India. And one of the things that is has really st- stood out for me is digitization. and you put in your piece, it's in overdrive. And when I think of digitization in an Indian context, I think of payment systems and I think of banking. Am I being too narrow-minded here or is that at the forefront?
1: No, I think you're spot on. I mean one of the major challenges with India has been the just the lack of financial inclusion. I've right? got a population of close to 1.4 billion people. How do you get them um, really how do, you, how do you get them involved in the financial system? And I think what's changed dramatically in the last few years is, a vast majority of the population now have bank accounts. So back in 2014, there was regulation that saw the opening of 18 million bank accounts in a single week. And that's so important because this coincided with a program called ADA, which is a unique ID system. Um, and and you know, you've got 1.3 billion people on that unique ID system. A lot of those people now have bank accounts linked to, to their unique IDs. So when you think about what this means for transacting online with your sort of bank details linked to your unique ID, when you think about what this means, if the government want to roll out aid and really target it at a specific population, they can do all these things. And that is really driving now a new age of digitization, which has been made possible by a company called Reliance Industries, which in 2016 effectively disrupted the internet. It effectively made the cost of data almost free. And that is now leading to a a real ecosystem around digitization, the internet, online, e-commerce.
0: I just want you to give me an idea of how widespread digitization is. I had to cancel a trip to India because of COVID over the last couple of years, but I I was really looking forward to uh, street food. So let's say say that I was walking along and I saw a delicious vendor, and would that vendor allow me to pay with my mobile phone, for example?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know, this is this is a fruit vendor. This is a vegetable vendor. This is a, a street market. All these guys accept online payments. It's pretty unique. And I think, you know, what made this happen was in 2016, the government launched what they call UPI, Unified Payment Interface. And that effectively allows multiple bank accounts to be linked to a mobile app. All of that to facilitate a peer-to-peer or a peer-to-merchant transaction. So there's no fear now around transacting online, such that you've got street vendors taking online payments. And I think, you know, when you think about what that means for the broader economy, It also means that the informal economy is slowly, or perhaps not so slowly anymore, transitioning to the formal economy. And that's good for for India Inc.
0: And of course, other e-commerce opportunities also abound. So just briefly tell me, apart from the ones that we've just spoken about, what you focus on when you sit down at your desk every morning, would it be, for example, classifieds?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think India internet, Lindsay has has gone through a tectonic shift in the last eighteen months. You know, so five years ago, when we when we looked at the opportunity set in 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 the Indian sort of internet or e-commerce space, there were four listed e-commerce businesses five years ago. Fast forward to last year, last year alone saw eight Indian startups IPO. They collectively raised two and a half billion dollars from from public markets. So this is. This is a big thing for for India. And I think, you know, what what that means for us as investors is we might not subscribe at the IPO because we want to have more comfort around execution history or we want to wait to get a better price. But it does give us the opportunity to invest in some very exciting businesses that are changing the everyday lives of a population of 1.4 billion people.
0: Yeah, and talking about numbers, you talk about one point four billion, and when then we go to the old economy, if you like, but still a terribly important part of the Indian economy. It says Indian manufacturing is a relative laggard. This is what you say to increase this and capitalise on its demographic dividend, as you call it. One million jobs per month, not per year, per month will need to be created over the next decade. That sounds like a tall order, Varun.
1: Yeah, I mean it is a tall order, but. When you put the numbers together, it's pretty staggering, Lindsay. So, you know, India is the world's ninth largest economy. It's actually the third largest by purchasing power parity terms. But if you look at what manufacturing represents for the business, it's only accounting for close to 16 percent of GDP. Now, in contrast, you've got services, which is over half of the GDP contribution, and, and if you put it into a global context, India represents only 2% of global manufacturing output, which is a 10th of where China sits. So whichever way you slice and dice it, you know, India heavily, heavily under indexed here. So I think, you know, this this is not lost on, on, on the Indian government, on Indian leadership. And I think what, what is happening in markets today is really the decoupling of supply chains. Um, and India is no different. So, you know, what, what's happened under the current leadership in India, which was started in 2014, was a program they called Make in India, really an initiative to encourage companies to, to develop and manufacture products locally. Now, they've put their money where their mouths are, uh, and they followed that up um, back in 2020 with what they call the Production Linked Incentive Scheme, the PLI scheme, which targets 10 sectors particularly auto components, semiconductors, uh, solar modules. Essentially, what the government are doing is they're um, providing incentives to the very best local manufacturers who can really come up the curve, build scale in manufacturing, and ultimately compete not just domestically, but, but on a global scale. And that, as you say, is having, um, having serious ramifications for, for job creation um, across the
0: country. Indeed. There are problems everywhere in a country the size of India, of course, with 1.4 billion people, whether it be drought, whether it be inequalities between the haves and the have-nots. And that sort of leads into the real estate sector industry, transparency. Because Mm. you say transparency and best practices have greatly improved consumer confidence at a time when affordability levels are at a 20-year high. I mean, does real estate, does investment in the real estate sector sort of take a back seat? to, for example, digitization companies or e-commerce companies?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Lindsay. I mean, um, you know, everyone has a mobile phone. And everyone is able to transact online. Most people have bank accounts. But all of that doesn't really mean a whole lot if you don't have a roof over your head. Yeah. And I think that is where the priority exists now for the Indian population, which has been really supercharged and prioritized by COVID. People want a space for themselves. Even if it's a small space, they want a space for themselves. That's really what, what, what the whole COVID experience is, I think, brought home. And I think, fortunately, the Indian residential market is in a much better place to where it was four or five years ago. And I think you alluded to to some of those changes. So, You know, it's been in a down cycle for the last seven or eight years. The biggest issue has been lack of protection for the consumer. So as a developer, if you deliver a project, a residential project with a severe delay, it's the consumer that has to suffer. The developer doesn't take a hit. And that sort of behavior leads to egregious activity. And one of the the sort of contributing factors to that sort of egregious activity was very loose capital by non-banking financial corporations that sort of didn't have know your customer um, norms, didn't really have, you know, very, very strong sort of governance. All that has changed. Those non-banking financial corporations have gone out of business. As a result of that, almost 50% of developers across India, property developers have exited the industry. And so what you're left with are the the guys that actually do what they say on the tin. They develop good quality residential projects, they develop it on time, and crucially the regulator has wised up to the extent where now if you uh, deliver a project with a delay, you owe the customer. You pay a penalty to the customer. So what's happened in the last seven or eight years as a result of that is house prices have been largely flat, whilst incomes have been up six to ten percent on average per annum. Yeah. So your affordability is at is at twenty year highs at a at a point where inventory levels are very low. So you can see that sort of virtuous circle kicking in as we approach a more attractive point in the um, in the capital cycle. And of course that has implications for how we is investors look at property companies in India, how we look at mortgage companies in India, how we look at construction
0: companies in India. Interesting. Your final bullet point says the following. The country has an abundance of resilient companies with a sticky customer base, whether it be banking, consumer services, healthcare, and all the other things we've spoken about. How does all this play into your strategy at 91? You must have a very, very difficult job as the economy proliferates And companies spring up all the time. Give us an idea of your strategy, given what you've just said over the last few minutes, please, Varun.
1: Yeah, I think, Lindsay, we're we're fortunate in that we have the ability to invest in markets where you have a really sort of um, vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem, where you have a long runway for growth. And... If you can make sense of those two things, valuations that sometimes do stack up. And really, that's the focus. It's, it's focusing on very good quality companies. And those good quality companies are showing you operating momentum that's coming in ahead of expectations. And as a result of those things, you're seeing increasing investor attention, more interest in those stocks. But crucially, we want to buy stocks at a discount to their intrinsic value. So it's, it's really the combination of those four things, Lindsay, that that enable us to stay focused on really what we think will make a very good investment. So you might have a great company that might not be a great investment. We're focused on both things, great companies that make great investments. And, um, you know, I think there's several opportunities in India and emerging markets alike.
0: Just one further question. It can only be a brief answer, unfortunately, Varun. And that is the currency factor the rupee, which has been under huge pressure. And in fact, I think a few days ago, it went to a record low. Is it easy to manage that risk?
1: Mm. I mean, I think, Lindsay, the one thing you know with emerging market currencies is that over time, they depreciate. So it's something we have to live with. So how do we think about that? Very simply, there's two ways that that we approach it. One is export-led businesses tend to do very well. And those are the types of businesses we hold in our portfolios. Companies that have... Costs in rupees, but earnings in hard currency, dollars and euros. And The Indian IT services companies are a great example of that. The second is domestic stories that really don't either benefit or suffer from the movement in the currency. And so there's really two ways to look at it. But looking at the currency is a relevant point.
0: Varun, thank you so much for your insight. Terribly interesting stuff, I must say. And in a way, I envy what you do every day. And in in another way, I think, goodness me, thank God I'm not doing that job. Varun Lajewala is an assistant portfolio manager at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.